God, we thank you for the authority and the sufficiency of your word. God, we love the fact that we can open it and we can trust that what it says is true. Lord, we thank you that every word in here has been inspired by your spirit. We thank you that every verse in this book is useful for our correction, for our reproof, and for uh, our training in righteousness. God, we thank you for so many in this room who have had their spiritual eyes opened by your spirit to be able to hear this word and to really hear it and apply it, not just for knowledge, but in transformation of the heart. And God, we do ask that you do that work today, that your word would move forth in power in this room and that your spirit would take it and plant it within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the most important aspect of good, godly leadership? What's the most important aspect of good, godly leadership? Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary, has written extensively on the topic of leadership. He claims that one of the most important characteristics of godly leadership is actually conviction. It's conviction rooted in right beliefs. He writes this in his book, uh, Conviction to Lead, that leadership is all about putting the right beliefs into action and knowing on the basis of convictions what those right beliefs and actions are. Leadership is conviction transformed into united action. That this book is written with the concern that far too much of what passes for leadership today is mere management. And without convictions, you might be able to manage, but you cannot really lead. The wise leader does not try to perpetuate matters of style and taste or even plans and programs, but the leader who aims at a legacy aims to perpetuate conviction. Found that helpful because the place that we're in, in the book of Nehemiah, the people of God are facing a leadership crisis, that they are in need of a leader who is not just wealthy, who not only has ties with the most powerful person in the world at this time, but the people of God are in need of a leader who was motivated out of conviction to doing what was right. And this is really what makes Nehemiah such a strong, godly, competent leader, is that he doesn't just believe this is a good idea to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but there is something deep within his soul where he is convictionally convinced to pursue this. And we've seen some um, really helpful uh, aspects of Nehemiah's leadership so far in chapter 1. We've seen that he's extremely compassionate towards, um, towards his people. We've also seen that he's committed to prayer. But as we look to chapter 2, I'm going to point out different aspects of godly leadership as we move through verse by verse this morning and just point out things along the way. But I really want to challenge you on the forefront here not just to think about leadership in terms of, of that only being a position like a CEO or like a mayor or like a lead pastor. But I want you to think about leadership as anyone who has influence over another person. Right Now, it's been said that leadership, good and bad leadership, uh, impacts every aspect of our lives. That leadership impacts organizations and businesses, 
and communities and cities and churches and, and, and even families, parenting, marriages, even, even friendships when you're influencing other people. And so as you think about some of these principles that we talk about today, I want you to take these principles and try to apply it to your particular area of influence. This might apply for some of you who are supervisors at work, CEOs at work, others of you, the the people that you lead are, are under the age of four or maybe running around in diapers, but you're still called to leading them well. And what we need today are Christian leaders who are motivated out of conviction to doing what is right. I think Nehemiah is going to show us what that looks like. So the first thing I want to point out this morning is that Nehemiah seizes the opportunity that's before him. Seizes the opportunity that's before him. In chapter 2, verse 1, we are given an important time marker. It notes for us that this is now the month of Nisan. Now, this is four months after chapter 1, verse 1, in the month of Chislev. So four months have gone by since Nehemiah first heard of the problem and the crisis facing God's people with the walls of Jerusalem in ruin. So he's been planning, he's been praying, he's been waiting patiently before moving into action. Now this isn't because Nehemiah is lazy, it's not because he's unmotivated or because he lacks conviction. What Nehemiah is displaying here is a principle that should be true of all godly, competent leaders, and that is patience. That patience doesn't mean inactivity, because clearly Nehemiah has been fasting and praying and planning, but Nehemiah is displaying patience in the sense of waiting for God's timing in providing the right opportunity to act. Now, this is really challenging because of the culture that we live in. We, we have this mindset of having immediate results, or I want to have it now type of a mindset. And yet good godly leaders do not immediately rush into action, but they pray and they wait patiently on the Lord for the best opportunity. That's what we see Nehemiah doing here. We find him on the clock. He's working. In these first couple of verses, we know that he's a cupbearer, and King Artaxerxes is most likely throwing a party. He's throwing some sort of festival, and so Nehemiah is serving the king. Remember, he's tasting everything before the king tastes it, makes sure it's not filled with poison. And so Nehemiah here, though, for really the first time, is, is finally expressing what he's feeling as it relates to the condition of his people. And the king notices. The king actually calls him out for it and says, why is your face so sad? Why are you so depressed. I know you're not sick because you're tasting things before I taste it. So what's going on within your hearts? And this is the first time that Nehemiah is showing this type of, of burdened uh, within his own spirit. And I think the king here is asking Nehemiah this because he doesn't want Nehemiah to kind of put a damper on the party that he's hosting. And so he's, he's trying to get inside what Nehemiah is going through. But notice Nehemiah's reaction to the king's question at the end of verse 2. He says, Then I was very much afraid. And that really kind of encouraged me. This might be one of my favorite aspects of chapter 2, because I think what Nehemiah is showing us is that godly leaders are in tune with their own inner condition. 
They're in tune with their own fears and their own doubts and their own inadequacies. Those times of feeling overwhelmed, they're very much in tune and in touch with that rather than constantly trying to project a type of image as if everything is just fine, right? Nehemiah is real. Nehemiah is human. He's in tune with his own fear, not because this is his first party that he's helping to host, but because the opportunity is before him and he doesn't want to miss it. See, I think it's unhealthy leaders. It's unhealthy supervisors, it's unhealthy parents and fill in the blank, who stuff and ignore what they're truly feeling and they're pretending to be someone that they're not. It's healthy and godly leaders who are in tune with their inner condition and their inner life. I think sometimes the people that we're leading, what they need the most from us, whether you're leading 100 employees or you're leading three little children, Sometimes what they need the most from us as leaders is someone to model before them what it looks like to appropriately and transparently share what they're feeling by applying God's truth to what we're feeling. Sometimes what they need the most is not this image as if everything is fine, but sometimes what they need is for you to not suppress what you're feeling, but to show them what it looks like to process what you're feeling through the truth of God's word, to show them that God's word actually works in what you're feeling and what you're going through as a leader. Just this week, I was with a a group of of elders, uh, part of this committee, and part of the the purpose of this committee, to be frank with you, is to kind of hold me accountable, make sure that I'm doing okay. And so they're asking how I'm doing, and I just shared with them that I've been experiencing this deep restlessness over the last couple of months. And, and I actually express, I, I think it's actually a form of, of anxiety, where I've had a few nights over the last couple of months where I just can't sleep, and I can't, like, shut my mind off. And I'm trying to, you know, make sure that we're transitioning into the new building well, and there's a thousand details that are going into it. But I find myself waking up in the middle of the night and trying to solve, like, theoretical problems. Like, they're not even real. They're just problems that could be. And so I feel like, yeah, two in the morning, this is the perfect time to address them, right? And, and, and I've caught myself kind of into the, uh, I've caught myself into this trap of anxiety. And, and I just asked the elders that were in this meeting, hey, can you pray for me? Can you, can you pray for me specifically that I would take every thought captive and that I would take what I'm feeling and process it through what I know is true in God's word? That's really how we battle anxiety, We don't just succumb to these thoughts and to the trappings of it, but we apply what we know about the Word of God. And I think good leaders do that. That's what Nehemiah is showing us here, is that he's in touch with his own fear. But notice here, he doesn't allow his feelings to be authoritative, right? We've said this many times before. Feelings are real, but they cannot be authoritative, They cannot dictate how you live your life. If they did, Nehemiah, who's gripped with fear, would just tap out at this moment. You know, this is actually too hard. My feelings are telling me that this is a greater fear, so I'm going to walk away because my emotions and my feelings rule the day. 
But that's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah is holding on to what God has given him as he processes his real fears, and he steps into this opportunity with boldness. Look at verse 3 here. He said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, Nehemiah is kind of priming the pump for for probably asking his biggest request that he's ever asked the king in verse 5. And I want to note just how bold and courageous this actually is. Verse 3 may not appear to be much, but when you understand the historical context, we understand how courageous Nehemiah actually was. See, Nehemiah is referring to the place of the Jewish people in Jerusalem where the gates have been burned, the walls have been destroyed, and he's about to ask the king for permission to go rebuild and fortify that city. Now, this is courageous because the Persian Empire has the Jewish people in captivity. And not only that, but 12 to 15 years before this conversation, there was a rebellion that took place led by the Egyptians, but there were groups of Jewish people that participated in that revolt. And the Persian Empire had to, had to kind of suppress that. And so now Nehemiah comes before the king of Persia 12 to 15 years later and says, hey, I know that was a sore subject about a decade ago, but I need permission to go fortify this city that tried to have this revolt against you. This is boldness and courage at its finest by a godly leader. Now, I'm not saying that leadership means to be reckless, but it means to be so passionate about what God has put in your heart that you don't allow fear to override you. And so he is expressing this to the king, and the king responds in verse 4 and says, well, what do you want? Now, this conversation, I'm not sure could go any better for Nehemiah. Like over the last couple of months, Nehemiah has been trying to project how this conversation was going to go, right? I'm going to say this, king's going to say this, I'm going to say that. But do you think Nehemiah ever thought that talking to the most powerful person in the world, that he would ask him what he wants? And yet he finds himself with really the ball teed up here for him to make the most important ask of his life. But notice what he does here. He doesn't immediately go into verse 5 with the request. He does something else that's so important for godly leadership. Look at verse 4b. It says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is so important. This is like mid-conversation. He's praying in his heart, in his mind, just throwing a prayer up to God, displaying his utter dependency upon God. This is huge for what it means to be a leader who's leading out of conviction and godliness, is that what we see here is there is consistency between who you are in the public and who you are in the private. See, we know Nehemiah privately is a man of prayer. Chapter 1, verse 6, he's a man who prays day and night. We know that to be true, but he's so consistent in who he is that he's still the same guy in the spotlight. 
out in front of his friends, out in the workplace, still in tune with who God is and what he's trying to do. Look, this is so important for you and I to be consistent, both within the home, in private, when no one's watching, and when we're out with other people. And I think the temptation cuts both ways, does it not? Like the temptation is to be one person at home, Maybe you're doing your devotions, you're maybe leading people well, you're, you're committed to the Lord in private, but maybe when you're out in the workplace or when you're out with other friends, your faith goes out the window, right? That's one temptation, but then you flip it, and I think it's, it's a strong temptation as well to be godly out in public, to be somebody out here, but then privately your faith goes out the window, See, Nehemiah is showing the need to be consistent in who you are when no one's watching and in who you are when you're out in the public. But not only that, I think Nehemiah is also showing us where the real battle is taking place. See, for Nehemiah, he knows that the real battle here is not between flesh and blood, but it's actually in the spiritual realm. That's why he's praying See, Paul says something about this in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, Paul says for us to pray at all times. See, Nehemiah knew that the real battle here is not between him and King Artaxerxes in getting permission and having him fund this whole project. Nehemiah knew that the real battle was in the spiritual realm, and he engages in that battle through prayer. Look, I want to challenge you this morning as you consider what it looks like for you to lead in the particular arena of your life that God has you in, are you applying this principle? Like in the workplace, before a meeting, before a big presentation, before an important conversation, are you seeking the Lord in prayer? Maybe not shutting the door and for 10 minutes you're on your face, but but even just a quick prayer, maybe mid-meeting, mid-conversation, just seeking the Lord in your heart and your mind. Parents, as you're trying to lead your kids and disciple your kids and influence them, are you praying even as you're with them? And maybe you're losing all patience. Maybe it's the, the 20th diaper change of the day and you're absolutely losing out on sleep and you're so tired. Are you turning to the Lord in prayer? If you have a friend that you're influencing before you gather, are you praying, asking the Lord to use you to influence them? This is what we see Nehemiah doing. And in verse 5, he makes the important request to go to Judah and to rebuild the walls. And so he seizes the opportunity. But not only that, throughout this passage, we also see the plan and preparation of Nehemiah. Nehemiah receives the green light from the king in verse 6, but he's not finished here. He follows that up with a detailed request showing us just how prepared and well-researched Nehemiah was. He wasn't just sitting on his hands for four months, wasn't just praying, but he was preparing. 
Notice verse 6, Nehemiah could give the king an answer on the amount of time that it would take to journey to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and come back. Notice in verse 7, Nehemiah knows exactly what kind of authorization he would need to go west of the Euphrates. Notice in verse 8, Nehemiah knows exactly the kind of materials he would need to rebuild the temple, the city, and his own house. Look, this shows us that yes, we need to be people who are praying, but we also need to be people who are planning and preparing. That good leadership does both. So the end of verse 8 tells us that the king says yes to this request. And at this point in time, Nehemiah acknowledges that the hand of God was upon him. He's recognizing that really the source of his strength is God Almighty. It's not in his planning. It's not in his preparing. It's not in in, in this conversation he just had with the king. But he acknowledges that it's actually God's favor that's been upon him. Furthermore, I think we see this beautiful and mysterious relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We see God's favor, God's sovereign work, placing Nehemiah exactly where he placed him, but we also see that Nehemiah took seriously his own role in being faithful, in being obedient, in researching well. And there's obviously a mystery to that, but both work in accordance with each other. So Nehemiah, he gets the letters of authorization from the king in verse 9. He has officers from the army who are leading him for protection. And verse 10, we are introduced to this opposition that Nehemiah will face all throughout this book, Sambalit and Tobiah, more on them towards the end. Verse 11, Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem, and it tells us that he was actually there for three days. Now, we're not exactly sure what he does for three days, but we know that Ezra, in chapter 8, verse 32 of Ezra, did the exact same thing, traveled all this way and was just there for three days before doing anything at all. And I think because of the fact that it took 800 miles for Nehemiah to travel here, I think that we can safely assume that Nehemiah rested in some form or some shape here. Maybe he took a power nap. Maybe he did something to just rejuvenate and to recharge before he moves into implementing his plan. And I think this is an important principle for what godly leadership looks like in having the right kind of pace. It's not just go, go, go and work hard, hard, but it's also resting well, making sure that you're taking time to recharge, to rejuvenate, to making sure that you're avoiding burnout. So Nehemiah, he rests well, but he also investigates wisely. Nehemiah, before rallying the troops, mobilizing the people, casting vision in verse 17, he wants to do kind of a a feasibility study in verses 12 through 16. He he wants to kind of check out the scene to to get a better feel of of the destruction and and what the project is going to look like. And so verse 12, he, he does this investigating work, this preparation. He does so quietly He does so secretly. Three times it tells us that at night he does these things in verse 12, 13, and 15. And he also does this methodically in verses 13 through 15. We have like this description 
of Nehemiah going through the perimeter of the, of the walls, the broken down walls, to get a better feel of what he's gotten himself into. That Nehemiah at one point can't even travel through the, the, the path because there's so much debris and so much destruction. That Nehemiah, through his preparation, is understanding how enormous this project actually is. But again, I want to reiterate this point that godly and competent leadership involves planning and preparing. That planning and preparing is not the opposite of being spirit-led. Sometimes we think, oh, you're spirit-led, you're, you know, you're very spontaneous. and you, It doesn't mean it's the opposite of that. God uses both. And sometimes the Spirit of God uses us to plan and prepare to implement what He wants us to do. And this is a challenge, I think, across the board, wherever you find yourself as a leader, but in particular, I think, within the home. Like parents and grandparents, you need to have a plan for the spiritual development of your family. You need to be intentional about what that looks like to grow the individuals, the real souls that are in your home. You can't just wing that sort of thing. Like even for the Beals household, just because I'm a pastor does not mean that the Bible just automatically opens up and we spend hours upon hours in worship and praying just automatically. Like we have to be intentional about what this looks like to to grow spiritually and to invest in our kids. And I think godly leaders, they plan and they prepare effectively. So Nehemiah, he has the resources he needs. He has the permission from the king that he needs. He's prepared. He's planned. He's rested. He's researched. Now it's time to cast his vision and to mobilize the people of God. In verses 17 through 18, I think he provides these four incentives to inspire the people in order to catch the vision. Notice in verse 17, first, he identified with the people. It's, Nehemiah says, notice the trouble that we are in. This isn't just you got, it's not just your problem, but it's our problem that we're going to handle together. Secondly, notice that he stresses the seriousness of the situation by being honest and realistic and assessing the facts. He doesn't sugarcoat the condition of the walls. He says, no, they're, they're in ruins. Like, this is, this is bad shape here. And then thirdly, Nehemiah is committed to action. He's committed to not just being part of the problem, but being part of the solution. He talks about, no, we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then verse 18, we notice that he even shares his personal testimony as evidence of God's favor upon this project. Like these are all ways that Nehemiah is trying to inspire, trying to cast vision for the people to follow him. But there's a little bit more to it than that. In verse 17, we notice that Nehemiah sees what others do not see. Verse 17, it tells us that Nehemiah declares, you see the trouble that we're in. And the reality is, is that they saw the trouble that they were in, but they didn't really see the trouble that they were in. Like the people here were so accustomed and so familiar with the broken down walls that it led them to apathy. It led them to not truly seeing the issues before them that mobilized action out of conviction. But Nehemiah sees it. 
and he's not okay with what's before him. And sometimes that's what it takes for good leaders to step up and to see a problem and to see the root issue and say, that's not okay. We're going to address this and we're going to fix this together. Good leaders are part of the solution, not just pointing out the problem. And I want to ask you this morning, is that how you lead? Is that how you lead at the workplace, in your family, in your friendships, even within the church? Are, are you pointing out problems and not being part of the solution? Or are you pointing out problems, this needs fixed, that needs fixed, but hey, let's fix this together. I think good leaders, they inspire, they provide hope, they provide direction, and they provide action steps in moving forward. That Nehemiah takes the initiative in verse 17 and says, look, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and no longer suffer disgrace. And the people of God, they respond with a resounding yes, and they begin strengthening their hands for the good work. This is good leadership on display of Nehemiah just coming in, casting vision, and people responding. Well, as we move into these last couple of verses, in verses 19 and 20, we notice that opposition uh, starts, starts to take effect, that we're introduced here to the unholy trinity, if you will, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. We're going to get to know these guys over the next couple of chapters. And they know that Nehemiah has the credentials, has the authorization from the king, but it doesn't stop them from using ridicule as their tool to discourage the work of God's people. Now, here's the principle that we see. As godly leaders who are doing God's work, God's way, opposition is inevitable. Like, you will experience opposition in some way. And it's because the world opposes the principles of God's word and who God actually is. And I want to encourage you this morning, don't be surprised when you experience that in your life. When you look throughout church history, it's actually rare when you don't experience opposition doing God's work God's way. And so for you not to be surprised by that and for you to be prepared in how you're going to respond to opposition when you're doing God's work God's way. Notice Nehemiah's response here in verse 20. He declares, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I love this response by Nehemiah because Nehemiah is not a pushover. Nehemiah is displaying that godly leadership does not mean that you're a walking mat. He, he doesn't compromise in this moment. You want to be gracious in the face of opposition, but Nehemiah here is not, not, is not going to compromise what God has put in his heart in order to fulfill. Now notice he doesn't speak of his own authority, and he doesn't speak of the king's authority, but of God's authority. And then he encourages the people to ignore the ridicule and to stay focused on the work that is at hand. And this is good leadership by Nehemiah. He's, he's going to display even more principles for us to, to Im imitate as we go through this book. But as we close this morning, I want to I bring this home by sharing three points of application. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean as we look at the example of Nehemiah and his leadership and 
the people of God as they followed Nehemiah. Three things I want to point out here. First application is to celebrate and to embrace God's sovereign hand on your life. What's interesting to think about this is just how sovereign God was in putting Nehemiah exactly where he needed to be at the exact point of time in history. And for Nehemiah to get news about what took place in Jerusalem 800 miles away from him, and for him not to respond with the sense of, oh, great, I'm stuck in Persia. I can't really do anything to influence that over there. Like, I wish God would would make me more effective and, and do something about that. No, I think we see Nehemiah embracing the sovereignty of God by knowing that God had put him where he put him for a reason in order to influence the people around him. Like, I just want to remind you this morning that God has you exactly where he has you, and it's not by accident. And he has you exactly where he has you in order that you might influence the people around you for good. Like, that's definitely true here this morning, that you're at College Park Fishers listening to the word of God being preached. That's not an accident. That where you work, God surrounding you with the coworkers that he has is not an accident. That God placing you where you live, having the neighbors that God has put around you is not an accident. The the spouse that you may have is not an accident, even though we might say, oh, why did God have me marry this person, right? That's not an accident, though. It's for a particular purpose. God giving you the kids that he's given you and, and, and the friends that he's given you is not an accident. It's for a particular purpose in his sovereign grace to use you in order to influence the people around you. Look, sometimes we think, man, if, if God could just change my circumstance, I would be a lot more effective for him. If God could just change this situation, I could do more for the kingdom. And look, sometimes that's true, but more often than not, God has placed you exactly where he's placed you in order for you to be faithful and to influence the people around you. Not someday out in the future, but today right here to make a difference. And it may not be to rebuild a wall in your city, but it might be to influence your coworker. It might be to influence your neighbor. It might be to influence your spouse or your kids or people within this church. And it starts by embracing God's sovereign hand on your life exactly where he has you. Secondly, another application I see from this is to be mindful of your motivation in leadership. I love verse 12. This, I think, struck me the most as a leader where Nehemiah says that, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah, before he does the investigation, before he casts vision, before he implements this big change, he goes back to the why of what he's doing. He's going back to the motivation for engaging in this type of work. See, Nehemiah's driving force for leaving the cushy lifestyle in the palace, traveling 800 miles, engaging in opposition, leading a disgruntled and disunified people, is because God put something in his heart, a passion and a vision and a conviction that he could not ignore. Now, 
He's not being motivated by having the approval of others or how many likes on Facebook he's going to get or some type of selfish motivation here. No, he's being motivated by what God has put into his heart. You know, the Apostle Paul speaks about what should motivate us today as believers in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that the love of Christ should compel us because Christ died for sinners. That the gospel actually provides the motivating power to do what is right out of conviction. Not out of selfish gain, not out of pats on our back, not out of even a fear of failure, but you lead exactly where God has you because the love of Christ compels you. Like, I can't tell you how many times I, I go back to the why uh, uh, of, of why I'm in ministry. Like, I, I got to tell you this morning, like ministry can be hard sometimes. Like, yes, you get a front row seat at God's grace on display in people's lives, but you also get a front row display at, at the ugliest impact of sin in people's lives. And sometimes it's not that rewarding, just to be honest with you. Like, I'm not complaining. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love it. But I have to go back to, to this calling that God has placed on my life. I have to go back to the fact that the love of Christ compels me to love people and to preach the gospel and to spill my life for the good of his glory. And I think good leaders go back to what God has put in their hearts in order to shape how they lead. See, that's, that's the sneaky aspect about motives, is that as leaders, your motivation shapes your leadership. It always spills out. For example, parents, as you're leading your kids, if your motivation for influencing them is because they're a reflection of your godliness or how good of a parent you are, that's going to negatively impact your parenting. But if your motivation is, wow, this child is made in the image of God, I've been given this gift to steward in order to, to woo, help woo them into the gospel, like, like those motivations will impact the way that you parent. So I think we need to guard ourselves as we think about leading and influencing others of the why behind the what. And then the last thing that I'll point out here, the last aspect of application is just to point out that there is plenty of rubble to go around at College Park Fishers. Like there's a, a scene here that's painted on the second half of chapter two where Nehemiah is trying to scope out the project and, and he can't even travel through every aspect of the wall because there's so much debris and so much destruction. In fact, some historians estimate that there were over 50,000 Jews that participated in the rebuilding of the wall. That's a lot of rubble to go around. That tells me that, that, that there was a role for, for every single person to play in the vision that Nehemiah had. And, and I just got to be honest with you this morning, the same is true at College Park Fishers. Like on Sundays, it, it might appear that we're kind of this well-oiled machine, and it might just be the illusion that we've put before you, because we're praying every week that the Lord does a mighty work in and through us. And I just want to lay before you that, that we need more hands in the work of helping shape College Park Fishers, soon to be Pennington Park Church, in becoming a healthy place. Like we've got this new building that's going live in a few weeks. And we really need your help 
in moving, if, you, if this is true of you, moving from just being a spectator and being a participant of moving from just coming and receiving to coming and serving. To take verse 12 of what has God put in your heart to do here in this local community and to find a role to play in our church. We would love that. And I just want to lay that before you to, for you if you're, if you're not participating in serving to consider what that might look like for you. And, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to put something before you, kind of a, a big serving push in order for you to know what opportunities that we would love for you to help us with. That we need more people serving on Sunday morning. We need more small group leaders. We need people across the board as we make this important transition. And so as we close this morning, I just want to share one more thing. I want to share what my favorite part about Nehemiah is so far. My favorite part about Nehemiah, even though we're two chapters in, even though this book is positioned some 400 years before the life of Christ, I love how much we can see Jesus in Nehemiah. Like, Nehemiah is a tremendous, phenomenal leader, but Jesus is a better one. Like, even though Nehemiah, who leaves the comforts of his earthly palace, and he gets into the messiness of his people in order to rebuild and restore something that was broken, you know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't just leave an earthly kingdom he left an eternal kingdom. He, he left and didn't just travel 800 miles. He went from heaven to earth and was born as a baby, born in a manger, and lived a sinless, perfect life, even though he was tempted in every way that we are. And not only that, but he got so involved in the messiness of his people that he was part of the solution by getting up on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. That Jesus Christ didn't just rebuild some physical wall, but Jesus was rebuilding and restoring humanity by giving up his own life for the sins of the world, including your sin and including my sin. That's how great of a leader Jesus is. That's how sacrificial that he is, and out of conviction he came in order to restore us into a right relationship with him. And I want to encourage you as you think about what it means to lead in your own life, whatever that looks like, for you to first look to Jesus, King Jesus, who is the truer and better Nehemiah, who is the great leader that we can trust and follow with our whole lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful chapter. We thank you for the example that Nehemiah sets before us. And God, we see principles in here that we want to imitate, but Lord, we want to hold up Jesus Christ all the more because he is the best leader that's ever lived on the face of the planet. And so Lord, would you help us to be faithful leaders in whatever arena you've given us to have influence over other people, whether that's with our friends or our family or our neighborhoods or at work or in this church. God, we want to be people who are faithful to the calling of whatever you've put in our heart. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.